Before we get into the text, I want to read to you two contrasting stories about forgiveness. These two people were a part of the Holocaust times, the harsh times of Nazi Germany. I just want us to listen and to see clearly the stark differences in the response. Simon Wittenthal was a Jew and a prisoner in a concentration camp in Poland. One day he was assigned to clean the barns, and these barns were converted into hospitals to serve the injured SS German soldiers. Toward the evening he was cleaning, and a nurse came to him and grabbed him by the hand and carried him to the bedside of a dying young SS soldier who was about 21 years of age. The SS soldier took his hand and said to him, I need to be forgiven by a Jew. For the horrible things I've done to the Jews, I need to be forgiven. So Wiesenthal listened to the man still, listened to how he was young and innocent, and listened to how he was a part of horrible massacres of Jews. On one occasion, he would have recalled putting on fire a building, and when the people tried to escape, they gunned them down. Wiesenthal listened to the man, listened to his sad tale about how he was innocent and how he'd done all these wicked things. And at the end of it, he jerked his hand out of the man's hand, left the barn. No word was spoken and no forgiveness was given. Second story. Corrie ten Boon was arrested for hiding Dutch Jews from Nazis. <coughs> she would have survived the concentration camps and after escaping would have made it her gold after being saved to spread the, the, the story and the word of God about forgiveness of sins and about how we need to forgive other people. In 1947, she was tested herself. After preaching and speaking in a Munich church, a man came up to her, an old man in a gray coat, and said to her, How good is it, Fräulein? This is Fräulein being a word used for young, unmarried, German-speaking women. How good is it? As you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Now she recognized this man. She froze. She said, And I, who had glibly spoken about forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket rather than take the man's hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he? Remember me out of all the thousands of women. Now this man was known for mocking the women when they showered. She said, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. He went on to say, you mentioned Ravenbrook in your talk. I was a guard there, but since then I have come to become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for all the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from you, Fräulein. Again, he came out with his hand. Forgive me. She says, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy, one of her friends, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death Simply for the asking. Jesus help me. 
She prayed. I can lift my hand. I could at least do that much. You provide the feeling. And she goes on to say, but the experience, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started to my sh- from my shoulders, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. Tears came from my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. There's a fundamental difference between these two responses to both horrible tragedies. Both legitimate things to be in pain about. It's not as if what Withensil went through was a small issue or what Corita and Boom went through was more of an issue or vice versa. But there was a fundamental difference in the response. One having encountered the gospel of Christ and what he had done for her, being able to forgive, and the other, not so much. The passage that we're looking at, just to give a con- some context about the surrounding verses, this chapter, chapter 18, is broadly understood to be talking about relationships within the church. Matthew Henry would have divided it in, in such a manner, he would have said, like, the first few verses, verses 1 to 6, would have been speaking about humility. We could see, remember, when, it was, when they asked who would be the greatest in heaven, and he would have been spoke, speaking about being as a child. Concerning offenses in general, verses 7, by us to others in 8 and 9, may us to ourselves rather in 8 and 9, to us to others in 10 and 14 to 14. And then he goes on to say there are two sorts of offenses mentioned between verses 15 and 35. Between 15 and 20, he says, scandalous sins to be reproved. And we remember right above this particular text. The instructions given to how we're supposed to handle brothers and sisters when they sin against us, bringing two or three brothers and so on and so forth until they bring it before the church. And then we get to where we're at in verses 21 to 35 that I just read before you. We know this to be the parable of the unforgiving servant. Many of us know it from this context. A parable being... Excuse me. Probably being a, sh- a, a comparison of narratives drawn from nature or human circumstances meant to convey a spiritual truth or lesson. Now many of Christ's parables were clear on the surface, but he said himself that all of them have spiritual implications that can only be understood and perceived by those who have spiritual life. So my prayer this morning is that we would have our eyes open by the Holy Spirit and our ears open to hear as well. And the title of my sermon is going to be that An Unforgiving Christian is an Oxymoron. An Unforgiving Christian is an Oxymoron. Sorry, I just X'd out (laughs) where I was looking at. One second. I want to do this in two ways. The first point I want to make is that God forgave us. And when we look at the forgiveness of God, I want us to see what exactly it is that we need forgiveness for, and then how that forgiveness is made possible.
And secondly, the second point I want to make, sorry about that guys. The second point I want to make and show you from the scriptures is that a Christian will have a forgiving heart in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done, that we will be forgiven. Now the first point, let's just jump in straight away. What exactly is it that we need forgiveness from? Look at verses 24. Verse 24 reads, When he began to settle the debts, this being the master of the king, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Within our context, when we hear talents, that means little to us. We don't handle that currency anymore. But within that context, it was the highest amount of money within that system. A talent was the highest amount of money. And just to give you a little context of what the early hearers of this would have thought and what the disciples would have thought when they heard it, a whole nation would have only had a few hundred talents. But this man owed 10,000. Within our own context, if we're supposed to convert it now, one talent is worth about 33 kilograms of gold, which is 1.25 million US, I believe, which means 10,000 would be about 12.5 billion. That sounds like a lot of money, but I don't even think that gets to the point because the word that was being used for 10,000 was the highest enumeration, enumeration in the Greek language, which was like saying a zillion in our own language, a zillion being an uncountable amount. What this man owed the king was not something that could be paid. It was simply something that he could not pay off. There's nothing that he could have done in order to have the debt dealt with. He could not have worked for the rest of his life. Even the sale of his family would not have been enough. He would have still been in debt after all that would have been done. And what exactly is the underlying spiritual truth? What exactly is it that God is saying to us, that Christ is saying to us, is this debt? What are we supposed to glean from this? The debt is sin. Our transgression against God's law, our lack of conformity to God's law. God is holy. And earlier we would have just um, sung a song saying that he condescended to heaven and to earth. It's not just that Christ condescended and became sinful flesh, which we'll get to in a moment, but God himself, even to have other creatures, the holy creatures that we ourselves, when we look at them, would want to worship them, as often had happened in the Bible, when people saw angels would have bowed down and want to worship. The glory of angels were of such that people want to bow down and worship. But the song that we just sang that came from a psalm says, you condescended even to heaven. That is how holy the God that we worship and we serve is. That is how holy the God of the universe is. And this holy God who had created everything, who has authority over all things, we have sinned against. Many of us know the creation narrative. Many of us have an understanding of what happened in the garden. And to some people's opinions, even those who say they're saved, the reaction to that transgression of that one sin given in the garden, namely not to eat a fruit, we would, see was a bit, we would say was a bit you know, excessive that the whole of the universe was brought to naught in destruction and in pain because a man ate a fruit. This reality exposes our understanding, our lack of understanding of who God is and who we are. That the creator of the universe who would have made all things and told them where to go and they would have obeyed from the moons and the stars and the sea itself going no further because he said so. But man, in his arrogance, said no and disobeyed the holy and righteous God 
So although we in our finite understanding may not understand it, may not perceive of the glory of Christ, perceive the glory of God and the Holy Spirit, and understand the disgustingness of sin, we need not make a mistake because the Bible reveals quite clearly that it is horrible, it is disgusting. There's no word that I could probably describe it as. But if one sin is as such to drive the whole universe into turmoil, into plunder, think of ourselves. First, look at the externalities of what sin has done to the world. Every time you look at the news and see pain and suffering and war and famine, every time you hear a family member has cancer or someone got in an accident or you yourself suffered illness or pain, it is as a result of sin. But this is not just an external reality that we experience and is an external force that we have to deal with until Christ returns. It is something within us. In Genesis chapter 6 and 5, this is before the flood, but it still speaks true to the nature of man today. God says of us as human beings, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Only evil continually. Our nature is corrupt. We are not victims of an environment that causes us as we grow older to become more and more sinful and wrong and because of poverty or whatever external circumstances causes men to steal or to do wrong to one another. It is because we are sinners. Romans chapter 1 verses 29 to 32 puts it this way. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is what God says of us. And if it is that we... Because many people, particularly when I speak to people about being a hater of God, we don't conceive or perceive that we are haters of God. We think we like Jesus. We think that we are... We not be Christians or go to church or be faithful in the commands, but we don't hate God. Our hearts are not as such that we are rebels against God. I'm just going to be hitting you with some more scriptures coming from Romans chapter 8 this time, verses... 7 to 8, for those of us who may think that this doesn't apply to us. 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We need to have a very sober and honest and realistic view of ourselves if it is that we're going to get the gospel straight. It is not a case, brothers and sisters and those who are not a part of the faith, that you are a nice person or even a neutral person. You are considered an enemy of God. 
a hater of God. When you are confronted with the general revelation given to God, you do not submit to Him as you should. When you are confronted with the special revelation, explicit commands of the scriptures and the gospel, you are indifferent towards it. We do not often go to the scriptures and ask how we should think about money, how we should think about sex, how we should think about anything. Our heart's desire is not to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We do not ask that we may love God with all our soul, hearts, and strength. We are fooling ourselves if it is that we believe that there's anything within us that is inclined to worship God in spirit and truth. And again, I repeat, if it is that you think that you do this, you have a very low understanding of what it means to love God and His holiness and the nature of His commands. Christ says in His Word and the Gospels that it is not simply a case where we do actions and that is what is considered our thoughts. Imagine the standard that He holds us to, that even the thoughts that we think are sinful. And be reminded that one sin, not even a fruit, caused the whole world to be in turmoil. And yet we would, in our own context, with our own standards, have done much worse things than eat a fruit. Much worse things. In our thought life, there are things that we would not have anyone know. There are things that we have probably done, not just in our thought lives, that we would not have anyone know. So we need to understand, brothers and sisters, we need to understand, friends, that sin is disgusting and that we are all under it. None of us can avoid being called a sinner. None of us can avoid God's judgment as us being sinners. And what are the consequences for these sins? Now, we just spoke earlier about the temporal sufferings that we endure, the sickness, the decay, the pain that we cause others and that others cause us. But more importantly, more disturbingly, more horribly, something that we should fear more than just the temporal judgment is the infinite eternal judgment of God. Revelations 28 describes it as a fiery lake of burning sulfur. Matthew 13.50, a blazing furnace where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To disobey a holy and infinite God is to suffer a infinite justice God is holy and cannot react to sinfulness in any other way he would not be holy if he did not do such we need to see the holiness of God that we sang earlier in our songs is not simply something that we sing and we can conceive of and be happy about but something that is a a real thing that we should tremble if we understood it even believers would tremble if we began to think about the holiness of God and his righteous purity Now given this reality, given that we are sinful people and that there's no thought that does not go through the filter of our sinful desires there's no act that is unstained from our nature that corrupt nature and that God is holy how is it possible for us to be forgiven? Some may suggest that God is love He's a loving God Sweet God and as such He will forget He will simply abandon and forget our sins with no justice to be had. Some people are convinced of this because they see that God is love in the scriptures. This is true. And I want to read a part of the scriptures that speak about that as well in Exodus 34 7. It is true, God is loving. It says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands. 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it goes on to say right after that, there's a comma. But who will by no means clear the guilty? How is this possible? If it is that the Bible says that we cannot please God, it's not an opinion, it is not something that some people have the ability to do and others do not. It is not that one person is righteous and the other person is. All of us are considered sinners. None is good, none is righteous. Romans 3, 9 to 12 tells us that no one is good, not one. No one seeks after God. None of us are considered good. And at the same time, simultaneously, it says that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. So if we are condemned and considered guilty, with no way to please God in ourselves, how is it possible for holy and righteous God to forgive our sins? In one word or one name, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christ condescended and became man. Wrapped himself in sinful flesh. Lived the perfect life that we could not live. He conformed to the law that we, in our unrighteousness, cannot conform to. And he suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And I want to delve into this a little further. The scriptures in Corinthians says, in 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was clothed in our sin. We understand to some degree those of us who have been exposed to the gospel before, the, the concept called imputation, where we are given Christ's righteousness. We were given righteousness by Christ. The only possible way that we could be justified before God is because of Christ's active righteousness that was given unto us. So we're legally declared righteous. But in the same breath, in that same way, he was considered guilty before his father because of us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. I want us to think about ourselves again. Think about the sins described earlier. The haters of God, the liars, the lustful. And understand that the perfect Son of God, who perfectly obeyed the law until his dying day, was considered you. Now again, if you have a high view of yourself, you wouldn't think that's that bad. But if it is that we have any inkling of understanding of what sin is, and we are broken and understanding in our minds what it is that we have done towards God in our thought lives and in our actions. When we think of other people in history, to understand that these sins were laid upon a sinless man. That our unfaithful thoughts, that our covetousness, that our faithlessness, our covetousness and trusting in the world and desire for it, that Christ was seen as this on your behalf. Imagine being in perfect unity and love. You can't really imagine it, but try to conceive of being in perfect unity and love with the Father for all eternity. And for enemies, not for friends, not for people that liked you, you were considered a curse 
for enemies who even after seeing what you have done on the cross without the power of the Holy Spirit would spit upon the work of the gospel this is who we are and this is what Christ was seen on upon the cross he cried out Father Father why have you forsaken me for the first time in history the Father forsook the Son in something that I can't even begin to understand I will not try to explain this to become a heretic but there is something profound about that truth that Christ was forsaken by the Father for our sakes and that it pleased the Father to crush him for enemies of God I would hope that believers at this point although I am feebly preaching would begin to have some intuition of why it is that we should be forgiving people do we understand what was done on the cross for our sins are we moved by it when we hear that Christ bore our sins on the cross and was cursed for us and was seen as a sinner for us and that it pleased his father to crush him is this something that moves us does it cause us to give a second thought to our own sins and how even now we compound it even having been exposed to the gospel so many times saved and unsaved because within this culture for the most part most of us have heard about Jesus before in the gospel that being confronted with our sin and the holiness of God and the work of Jesus Christ we continue to sin daily in our thoughts and our actions I hope that believers at least would have some intuition in their hearts to why it is that we then need to be forgiving people having been forgiven so much having experienced the grace of God to such an extent there should be something intuitive something strange about not being able to recognize the need to be forgiven towards people and then when it is that we understand that the gospel is described as such that it has nothing at all to do with any merit that we put to the table nothing at all to do with us being more intelligent than others or better than others for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast there is nothing about the gospel there is nothing about what Christ would have done nothing about you that would have facilitated your debt being able to be paid you did not lift one finger to any offense to be forgiven that you would have done to the Father. Not one offense have you gained any merit to have forgiveness for. Not one. But yet many of us have the audacity. Many of us have the pride. Many of us are haughty in the thoughts of ourselves that as Christians who say they believe in this gospel, who say they recognize the beauty of the work of Christ on the cross to be unforgiving to others. Even although we understand even the salvation received as a gift, it is not as if Kamar or any other person who professes Christ was more moral or smarter than anyone else. But pure grace. Pure grace. This relational dynamic that we have with the Father, no longer through pure law, no longer being cursed under the need to be obedient because of what Christ would have done. This legal change as being justified it doesn't just change us in a legal manner 
it changes us fundamentally from within. There's a dynamic change of relation from law to grace that happens between us and the Father because of the propitiation that God would, Christ would have done for us. Propitiation being the satisfaction and the appeasement of his cross and the reconciliation that he would have gotten for us to the Father. This change in the relationship to God, the Father, changes how we relate to other people. It inevitably will. Which brings us on to the second point. Christians will have a forgiving heart. There is something about that fundamental recognition of the gospel. There is something about knowing who Christ is and what he has done for us. That doesn't just change how we think about ourselves and God, but how we think of other people. Consider verses 21 and 22 of Matthew with me. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him, as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Now when Peter said this, he wasn't saying this in order to be flippant about it. Having just heard about the process of having to forgive brothers and bring them before the church and go through this process because forgiveness is an important Christian ethic I'm sure that Peter wasn't trying to dismiss it and because of the scholars understanding of how these words are used particularly the number 7 being used it is often used as an indication of intensity we see this when the scriptures speak of you know the words of God being pure and Metal purified seven times or the sevenfold curses. So many times this word is used for intensity to show that it is many. So Peter was basically saying, you know, God, you want me to be a person that has a high standard to forgive a lot? And Christ's response was no. And in his response, when saying 77 times or in the King James, 70 times 7, which many people know in totally, you know, 70 times 7, when I said 77, it probably been strange to you. But 70 times 7, he wasn't saying, well, no, 490 times is the amount. Is that your standard is high, you want to forgive a lot, which is 7, but my standard is, is 490. It wasn't that Christ was getting at that, some legalistic understanding of trying to tip off in our minds how to forgive people. Actually, in the previous story with Wiesenfeld, the Jewish understanding of forgiveness is three times is you're out. He would have asked some rabbis what he should have done and many of them said that he did the right thing in not forgiving the man because of the heinousness of the sin. But the Christian understanding, what Christ demands of us is that we not simply be people who have a legalistic understanding of forgiving people to feel good about ourselves but that there will be a disposition, there will be something within us, a nature change that is as such that we will just be forgiving people. This is not a number we could count off. This is simply what we are in light of the gospel. Christ makes the ground for the first servant forgiving the second servant the forgiveness that he would have been, that he would have received. In 32 to 35, it reads... Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The ground that was being made, the argument that is being made from scripture that Christ is using to illustrate is that 
having received forgiveness, would it not be normal for you to understand that you should be forgiven as well? Would it, would it not be obvious to you, having been forgiven 10,000 talents, a number which you could not have been repaid, you could have not repaid, you couldn't give back 100, you couldn't, you know, allow 100 naira to be in debt to somebody and just forgive it? I want to make a quick distinction here because in this passage right after it says that in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I want to make a distinction between descriptive and prescriptive texts so it can be clear. This is not saying that if it is that you are not forgiving you're going to hell. If it is that the gospel is as such that we merit it, it would be not of grace and of faith that we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. So the scriptures here are descriptive. They're describing for us the reality of an unforgiving heart. And by implication, or inversely, what the forgiving or the Christian response should be in forgiving the person. This is describing for us what we should not do, how we should not be. And the reality of those who do not do so, which is not forgive. Those who are not changed by the gospel will be unforgiving people. I'm happy that the scriptures spoke of it in such a manner though. I don't want to be smarter or wiser than Christ. So I don't want us to state lightly this indictment on being an unforgiving person and the legalistic, unsafe, unregenerate person would say, Thank God. They thought I had to be forgiving. They would be comforted, but they understand that it's by grace and they would seek to be bitter and unforgiving because they would say to themselves, this is an opportunity for grace abound more with my unregenerate and forgiving self. So don't be comforted by this scripture or don't be comforted by my explanation that is a descriptive text and not a prescriptive text. The Bible spoke of it in such hard terms so we could have an understanding of the seriousness of the matter. That the fundamental change that happens at the foot of the cross is as such that we will be forgiving. This is not to minimize the pain that we feel when it is that we experience harm and pain. When it is that we are sinned against, it does cost us. A hundred denarii in their context was a lot of money still. It wasn't 10,000 talents, but a hundred denarii was still a lot of money. When it is that you are laid on, when it is that you are stolen from, when it is you're, you are misused, hurt, God isn't dismissing your pain and saying it doesn't matter. What He is saying though is that Christ has borne infinitely more than you will ever bear. And if it is that a holy and righteous God could make provision in killing His only begotten Son on your behalf in order to make it possible to forgive you, you, a mere human being, having someone on your own level sin against you should not be that big of a deal in an ultimate sense. Because ultimately, we sin against God. So even when you are sinned against, the Holy One is the one that is offended. What does this say about us, brothers and sisters, who have an unforgiving disposition? Who, in seeing the gospel again and recognizing what Christ would have done on the cross, being abandoned by the Father, being seen as guilty and suffering the wrath of God. What does that say about us who are indifferent towards this? Who will leave from here and still be dismissive and 
horrible to our wives or our husbands, who will treat our family members with spite, who would gossip the names of our co-workers, who would feel justified because we did right by somebody and did this wrong, we did right by them again and did this wrong, and then we say, well, I'm clearly a good person, this person is appreciating it, I don't want to be unwise and stupid and continue to, to be forgiven. I wish and I pray that we could be like Stephen, that as his head was being cracked by stones, he called up for the mercy of God for those who were doing the ill to him. That we could have similar experience like Tenboon, where those who have wronged us, we could find, not within ourselves or because of ourselves, but because of the gospel of Christ, the ability, the almost inhuman ability to forgive those who have wronged us. All I said here today is that the gospel is the ground for everything in the Christian life, in reality, including our forgiveness. If it is that we meditate upon the gospel and see it clearly daily and preach ourselves daily, it should not be difficult for us who are moved by the Holy Spirit to forgive others. I pray for myself that I would not be so dull to this. I pray for you that you wouldn't be so dull to it. I pray that we would not hear this and think it was an okay sermon and continue to live the same way for the unsaved person who often may hear other sermons on forgiveness being a self-centered act forgive people so you could be released from that and you know if you forgive people then you'll be able to move on with your life it's about you or even things that sound good like be the bigger person you know, be forgiveness, be better, be more moral, be you know, an upstanding person, be the bigger person, forgive them because of yourself. That is foolishness. The proper ground for forgiveness, the, the only thing that properly enables us to forgive in a true and a sincere way from the heart as is demanded from the scriptures is an encounter with the gospel. Is an encounter with the one who bore your sins. So I call for us as believers to meditate upon this gospel, to cry out to God for a heart if it is not found within us of forgiveness, of patience, of forbearance, as God continually does for us even now as regenerate believers, even as people who said we have encountered the gospel and probably have in our regenerate state there is still abiding sin and we forget the gospel many times, we act harshly. We are quick to be angry. We are quick to be indignant and indifferent. I would have us apply this scripture in how we relate to our family members. Would it be great if it is that they could see something of the gospel of Christ in how we treat them? Would it not be amazing if it is that your family members could see something of the gospel knowing what they have done to you but there's something different that it is possible for you to forgive them. It is possible for you to forbear them again and again, even if the world calls them stupid, or calls you stupid rather. Wouldn't it be an amazing testimony and witness of the encounter of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you could reflect something of his work? For those who don't believe, 
although I'm inadequate to express it properly, I pray that you would understand your sin. You'd have a clear recognition of the holiness of God. You'd be broken by it. And you recognize that there's only one answer to your sin. There's only one answer and one salvation from the righteous wrath of God. And that is faith in Christ Jesus. Your morality will not save you. You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and forgetting it and hoping that on your deathbed, if you're granted a slow or a peaceful death in old age, you would be able to say a quick prayer and hope that your good works would have outweighed your bad works. None of this will suffice. The only possible way to be forgiven is to trust in the spotless Lamb of God who would have lived the perfect life and died and rose again, proving that He truly did conquer sin and death. There's no hope outside of Christ. Early in the sermon, when everything seemed bleak, understanding the holiness of God and the standards and your perpetual sin, that is the state you're in. You're hopeless outside of Christ. There is nothing that you can do. You cannot repay the debt. So trust in Him. Look to Christ. And abandon yourself. Abandon your sin that is explicit and abandon your good works. Abandon trusting in yourself. It is turning completely from self to Christ. There's nothing left of yourself. 